So many of the world's issues have been exposed and identified in recent years. You can think of racism, sexism, nationalism, colonialism, etc., etc., etc. There's one ism, though, one ism, which I think is more prevalent and perhaps more controlling than any of the isms that I just mentioned. That is consumerism. Prominent author and pastor Brian McLaren writes, I must admit that apart from a miracle, I see no human power capable of standing up to the expanding empire of global consumerism. Eugene Peterson, beloved pastor, author, translator of The Message, he wrote a letter to his son Eric in ministry and said, one of the things that seems to make pastoral life so difficult nowadays is the pervasive consumerism which dominates our lives. Now, we all know about consumerism, but I fear that we profoundly underestimate its, its reach and its influence upon our lives. Now, by consumerism, I don't mean the cute but forgivable impulse toward retail therapy, a mild addiction to online shopping, the, the rush you get when you see a package on your doorstep, no. Consumerism, I think, runs much, much deeper than that, friends. One theologian writes, Consumerism is an approach to reality that fundamentally alters the way we engage and relate to the world around us. He says, as consumers, our attention is focused on obtaining or anticipating things that will satisfy our desires. These desires, though, get this, are not actually our own, but have been manufactured and induced by the market itself in many ways. In other words, and I know that you feel this, corporations, organizations, public personalities even, are telling us what we lack. They're they're convincing us of needs we didn't know we had before. And then they're immediately promising ready-made solutions to those needs, all, all for the right price. And final author, Wendell Berry, quoted him last week. He says, in this state of total consumerism which is to say a state of helpless dependence on things we've forgotten how to provide ourselves, all meaningful contact between ourselves and the world is broken. It's broken. Into this loud world of total enslaving consumerism, Psalm 23 whispers, Softly, the Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. Into this frenzied world of coercion, discontent, and targeted marketing, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Into this world where we're told we have nothing, that we'll be happy if, if only we had the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. But friends, can it be true? I mean, can this really, tr- truly be true for us? With the Lord as my shepherd, since the Lord is my shepherd, as long as the Lord remains my shepherd... I shall not want. In one way or another, friends, we're all registered citizens of the empire that is consumerism. We feel its pull, its effects on how we live and think, but Psalm 23 provides a way out. With the Lord, with Yahweh, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is truly nothing more that we need. So friends, this morning, I want to reflect on the nine nine little words which open this psalm. Words which I think our hearts are truly desperate to hear. And my my prayer is that we'd hear these words anew in this critical moment of our culture and that with the psalmist, we too would be able to say, I shall not want. So that's my plan for this morning. Um, But before we go any further, friends, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Jesus, our good shepherd, we need you. Open us this morning, please, to the deep, nourishing gift that you have for us every day. Make this a special time, perhaps the only segment of time this week where we are present, where we are mindful, where we are conscious of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't already turned there, friends, would you turn with me, if you need to, to Psalm 23. This is an iconic text, probably the most famous psalm in the Hebrew Psalter. Some people find it helpful to memorize this psalm, to recite it as a mantra during times of distress and difficulty. This is such a significant psalm. that instead of reading it to you, I'd like for us to read it together, if that's okay. And so as you are able, friends, would you stand and let us read Psalm 23 in the English Standard Version, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You may be seated. Now, whenever you pick up an acclaimed work of literature, always pay attention to first words. The first words often govern the remainder of what is said, and I think that's precisely what's going on here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is the thesis statement of the entire poem. And so what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is summarize verses 2 through 6, showing how they explain this initial statement in verse 1, but then we will pay special attention to those first nine words in verse 1. So the Lord is my shepherd, with the Lord as my shepherd, I lack nothing, I shall not want. What we then have are four he statements, he being clearly the Lord who is our shepherd. The first two, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, clearly refer to activities involving sheep and a shepherd. Now David is the author of this psalm. David knew what shepherding was all about. David has been shepherd, but he has also, I think, been the sheep. And so this first image is that of the shepherd leading the sheep to places where the grass is thick and fresh and green, places that promise, promise nourishment for days and weeks to come. The second line refers to uh, sources of hydration, waters, literally waters of rest. Not stagnant waters that are undrinkable, but, but waters that hydrate, but that also speak peace, and protection, security, tranquility. The third he statement ranges beyond the pasture a little to the realm of human affairs and says, He restores my soul. Now, this could be translated, he restores, returns even, my life. And so you think of examples of people being at death's door, just a a drip of life that's about to be dried up. They have nothing left, and the Lord turns their life around, restores them. I think of the story with Nathan in ministry and, and many others. We then get this statement that parallels the second, he leads me beside still waters. Now he leads me in paths of righteousness. We've talked about life as a journey, the heart or the soul traveling along a path, and the Lord leading our souls in safety into righteous habits 
and just ways of living so that we don't stray from the path into destruction. Verse 4 is almost proverbial in its fame and hallmark cards and signs for your house and so forth. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not even if the time comes when maybe I walk through this shadowy veil, but when, even though I walk through the valley, it says I will fear no evil. I think you can picture a sheep moving from green pasture to green pasture, having to traverse the kind of badlands or wilderness to get there. But you can also think of human beings walking along the knife's edge of life in the parched wilderness, difficult seasons, and as long as the shepherd is there, says, I will fear no evil. Your rod with which you strike enemies to protect me and your staff with which you guide me to green pastures, as long as those are there, as long as I sense them, I will not fear. They comfort me. The sheep walking along in the darkness, perhaps looking down, as long as the sheep senses the the patter of the shepherd's steps, he will fear no evil. In verse 5, we still get the presence of evil and darkness in the presence of my enemies, and David had enemies. In the presence of my assassins, my assailants, those who are after my life, you, you spread a banquet table before me, full of choice fruits. It says, you anoint my head... This is not the standard uh, verb for anointing a king like we saw in 1 Samuel, but this is to fatten. This is to to cut pastry dough with butter, uh, to to put lard into a burger. This is to, to oil and to fatten my head so that my cup overflows. Friends, this is the language of nourishment, of life, of, of sustenance in the presence of enemies. And surely, I am assured that goodness, loving kindness, and mercy, the Lord's mercy, will pursue me. They'll follow me like sheep all the days of my life. And as long as the Lord is my shepherd, I'll dwell in his house in abundance forever and ever. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. With the Lord as my shepherd, I do not need to want. Friends, what what does it mean to not want? I mean, this is so foreign to our experience in America today. I was reading this book by Eugene Peterson, a collection of letters to his son in ministry, letters to a young pastor, wonderful, relevant book. And he talks about detachment, about pastoral detachment. And this is what he says to his son, Eric. He says, Dorotheus of Gaza, the 6th century Egyptian monk, described detachment as being free from wanting certain things to happen. 
being free from wanting certain things to happen, and remaining so trusting of God that what is happening will be the thing that you want, and you will be at peace with all. So I read this, and of course I'm intrigued, and I did a little digging, because believe it or not, I'm not an expert on Dorotheus of Gaza. I didn't read him in my seminary training. And so I found a treatise by this monk, Egyptian monk from the 6th century, called On Renunciation. And I need to quote it at length, please, so bear with me. 1,500 years ago, this is what a monk in the deserts of Egypt has written. If we wish to be completely changed and delivered from the world... Let us learn to cut off our desires. And this way, he says, little by little, with the help of God, we shall prosper and attain to what he calls detachment or freedom from want. And he gives a few examples. He says, let us suppose that you are walking a short distance. You see something and the thought says to you, look over there. You reply to the thought, I will not look. You thus cut off the desire to look. Or let's say you meet some others who are talking idly among themselves, and the thought says to you, say a word also, but you cut off the desire and do not speak. Or perhaps the thought says to you, go ask the cook what he is cooking, and you do not go, and thus cut off your desire. Or you see something, and the thought says to you, ask who brought this, but you cut off the desire and do not ask. By cutting off the will in this way, a person comes into the habit of cutting it off. And starting with the small, they attain to the great, the cutting off of the great also. Over time, then, he concludes, over time, you come finally, finally to a state in which you have no will of your own at all. Then, no matter what happens... You stay calm, as if your own desires were already fulfilled. I shall not want. I want you to try to imagine a situation in your life in which you lived for just a few moments with no will of your own. Now, I'm not talking about having all of your wants satisfied, like being famished and being given a wonderful meal, or being parched and receiving a cold drink or something like that, and then you're satisfied. I mean a situation in which the the wanting cycle, thinking you uh, need something you don't have, wanting it, working to get it, and then feeling empty when you get it, that whole cycle, a time when that cycle was absent, or it was offline, as it were. Can you think of any? Friends, this roller coaster of, of longings and feelings which result from this endless cycle is absolutely exhausting. I know you know this. You're convinced that you need something. You start to long and obsess over that thing. 
You work hard and spend time and money to get that thing, and then you're disappointed with how you feel in the end, and so you want more. I talked about consumerism in America. And friends, I think our economic system largely depends on this cycle. Creating wants and fulfilling wants and depending on us staying in that cycle. When we start to want our desires taken care of seriously, we fall into this endless cycle of desiring more. If you take those voices, those urges, those longings too seriously, and if you keep feeding them, as Dorothea says, their hold on you, on us, will become stronger. I think the solution isn't to just have all of your wants fulfilled, fully fed, but to strip wanting of its power, of its hold. Only then will we see, I think, how real and how essential those wants really are. And we'll see that they're fake and they're empty. And they leave us just wanting more and more and more. I think the only way we can completely cut off our wants is if our deepest spiritual needs are met. And here, of course, enters Jesus. In John chapter 10, the New Testament presents its version, you could say, of Psalm 23, where Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. And this is what he says. He says, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the good shepherd. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and flees, but I, however, am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. I give them eternal life, and no one will snatch them from my hand. Friends, if we didn't have this source of deep spiritual sustenance, we couldn't afford to cut off our wants like this. We wouldn't be able to distinguish between our wants and our needs so easily. We desperately need such a source. The good news is we have such a source 
Jesus came to meet our soul's deepest and truest needs. The abundant life of which he speaks, though, is is not him just giving us what we want, feeding our desires, but it's giving us what we desperately and deeply need, friends. As Christians, we of all people should be free from this cycle of want. But are we? Are we? Are Christians characteristically less consumeristic, less selfish, less wanting than others? How would you answer, at least for yourself? Where do you live in relation to this cycle of want? Do you live inside of it or on the outside? And I know this is a weird way to ask it, but where do you want to live? I guess where does your soul long to live? In that cycle or out of it? I shall not want is not a matter of having all of our wants taken care of by God. It's not. But rather, it's letting Jesus meet our deepest soul's needs so we can let go of wanting itself. Now, I couldn't imagine preaching on Psalm 23 without mentioning the great English poet George Herbert. George Herbert lived in the 16th, early 17th century. You'll need your bulletin insert for this. And he left behind political ambitions and a career in Parliament in England to take orders as a priest in the Church of England at a very small parish. He served as priest until he died an untimely death, but in 1633, he wrote a poem called The 23rd Psalm. You can follow along in your bulletin insert, and I'll close our time with this poem, and we'll lead it to a closing prayer. The God of love my shepherd is, and he that doth me feed. While he is mine and I am his, What can I want or need? He leads me to the tender grass where I both feed and rest, then to the streams that gently pass, in both I have the best. Or if I stray, he doth convert and bring my mind in frame, and all this not for my desert, but for his holy name. Yea, in death's shady black abode, well may I walk, not fear, for thou art with me, and thy rod to guide thy staff to bear. Nay, thou dost make me sit and dine, even in my enemy's sight. My head with oil, my cup with wine, runs over day and night. Surely thy sweet and wondrous love shall measure all my days, and as it never shall remove, 
so neither shall my praise. Let's pray. Lord, we need you more than we know. As we continue to journey through this wilderness of Lent, walking slowly toward Holy Week, toward Easter, help us to live with the palm of our soul open, to feed from your hand, to not store it up for ourselves, to live as your sheep, and to let you be our shepherd. Lord, please lead us into this way of life, a way of life in which our wants are not all fulfilled or satisfied, but our needs, our soul's deepest needs, are completely met. We love you and pray that you'd be with us as we continue to worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.